We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where you learn how to be a leader and not just a manager of a to-do list. I am your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Your to-do list is a hungry monster that is never satisfied. For the last year and a half, I've helped principals get awards, get promoted, and find the time to do the work that really matters. I recently opened a new mastermind slot. Schedule a call with me and let's overcome the stressed and isolated principal position together. Go to the show notes for this episode at transformativeprincipal.org and click schedule a call with Jethro. Welcome to Transformative Principal. This is episode 292. I am Jethro Jones, your host, and I'm excited to have Dr. Grayson Moss with me today. He's the director of communications for the art of problem solving, which is a neat a unique solution to teaching math anytime, anywhere. So Grayson, thank you so much for joining Transformative Principle. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, I am excited to talk with you because we had a great conversation before we started recording and sorry that everybody didn't get to hear that, but we're already on a roll and I'm excited about that. Can you start by telling us a little bit about what Art of Problem Solving is, and then we'll talk a little bit about why math instruction needs to change? Absolutely. So in a nutshell, Art of Problem Solving develops educational resources for motivated students in grades 2 through 12. We write, publish, distribute our own textbooks. We have an online school. We have in-person learning centers. And we also create a variety of online applications as well and educational software. Excellent. And so math is certainly a hot button in education. And talk about why that matters and why you guys are doing something a little bit different. Absolutely. So, you know, I think I should probably start by saying why I used the word motivated there when I said that we develop educational resources for motivated students in grades uh, two through 12. Now, I should also say that that doesn't mean we don't serve students in uh, some grades below grade two or that we don't serve some college students, but by and large, that's kind of the you know, the set of students for whom we serve the most. I use the word motivated there because, you know, to me, it it really means two things. 
we have become the place where students come to, to not just learn more math, but kind of students can learn math that they're not going to learn in school. And also, I believe that some of the things that we do and just the approach to math that we've taken actually helps to instill motivation in students to want to do math differently, to want to think about math more, to do math in their free time, these kinds of things. And so uh, why do we take a different approach? Well, I guess first I should say uh, why a different approach might be needed. And this certainly isn't the case for everybody everywhere, but by and large, you know, math is traditionally taught in and out of most schools with an emphasis on uh, procedure, an emphasis on memorizing, and an emphasis on pattern matching. So, you know, a typical, you know, sequence for students when they're learning multiplication is they might learn a multiplication table, or they might see a very standard problem, uh, like 11 times six, and it'll be the 11 above the six, a line below that, little x to the left, and then the students are taught that, you know, you're going to multiply six times one, get six, six times one, get six again, and then you have 66. And then they're told that, you know, you're going to need to do that maybe 20 more times with just different sets of numbers, but the problems look the same. So, and you can imagine that we, you know, continue that series of activity for a lot of different things that we're going to be teaching students uh, when we teach them math in school. Now, there's a reason for that. You know, I'm not going to take too much of a deep dive into that. But I think the problem with that type of approach is that we're we're losing the art and beauty of mathematics. We're losing that the creative aspects of mathematics that are kind of inherent in the discipline for those that know it best. We're losing the problem-solving aspect of math. And so we believe that a fundamentally different way of teaching the subject is really what's needed. It's a way that inspires students. It's a way that really challenges them and gets them to think critically, creatively uh, about the discipline. And that's what we strive to do. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with you. And I love what you said that we're losing the art and beauty of mathematics. And I, I think that is really key because most kids hate going to math and they hate doing the math work that they have to do. What kinds of things do you guys do to make it so that math is not boring memorization, rote repetition, things like that? What do you do to make it so that kids actually want to do it? Absolutely. Well, one, we challenge them. We give them problem types that they haven't seen before, and we ask them to rise to the occasion. We give them puzzles. So that might not seem intuitively obvious uh, to you at first, but I can hopefully paint the picture with a couple examples or even maybe just one good one. So human beings, we're natural problem solvers. So many of us love to solve puzzles and solve problems. We actually get a, a rush of serotonin uh, flooding uh, when we unlock a solution to a problem or something that's been bugging us. And math is no different when we kind of reframe math problems into fun, challenging puzzles and things like this. So I'll give you an example. In grade two, uh, a standard kind of question that we might ask students in the camp of, let's call it comparing and ordering numbers, is we'll say, okay, we have 136, a blank line, and then 361. 
And in that blank line in the middle, we'll say to students, okay, write greater than, less than, or equal to on the line to compare the numbers. And then because students are, you know, supposed to understand, you know, uh, the different values of the places and where the numbers are, that they can say, okay, well, 361 is greater than 136. Well, that's not a particularly inspiring question to ask students. They're basically just saying, okay, well, which number is bigger and, and moving on, right? An approach that we might take is we might have a string of, let's say, five numbers on a page. And we'll say, okay, it's maybe three, four, two, five, one. And then we'll say, cross out two digits below to make the smallest three digit number possible. So now you're actually uh, making multiple connections and comparisons that are embedded in our problem. You're moving beyond comparing only two digits at a time. Uh, which can be done somewhat mindlessly. For example, you know, I can learn that I need to compare digits from the left to the right and then stop thinking about why that is the case. All I have to know is, okay, what, you know, what's the biggest number on the left and then move on. To efficiently solve the problem that I just posed to you, students have to think actively about how to make the digit in the largest place value as small as possible and then recognize that the leftmost place value is the largest, and then think about the next largest place value and so on. So essentially what I'm saying is that there's no faking it, right? When you, when you truly challenge students and give them novel problem types that they haven't seen before, they have to truly understand the concept and then carry that all the way through so that they can't uh, just pattern match or memorize or you know, follow some kind of rote procedure that's worked for them on the previous 19 problems that they answered. And so I think about that like, okay, so that's, that's great. But then when it comes time to do actual math where you need those rote skills that they would have gotten other places, what happens then? And can they still be successful in that situation? Absolutely. And so I would say that it's not wrong to have the rote. It's just wrong if that's all you have, right? So if you're going to need to have that kind of foundational, you know, basic understanding of, uh, you know, let's say a, a problem that I just said, comparing numbers, you know, greater than, less than. But if you don't move beyond that, you're not making new connections. You're not really solidifying these concepts in a deeper way in your brain so that you can have that knowledge come to bear in a situation that perhaps you're not prepared for. So I would argue, in fact, that by giving students the foundation, by making them do a couple uh, you know, drills and things like that, which that's totally fine, you then move on to something that's, let's say, a, a bit more advanced, that requires a bit more thinking and problem solving and creativity, things like that. And it's really that skill, that exercise and that activity uh, that bears fruit for students, not just within that math class or for that math worksheet or that problem even, but in every other area of their life, other subjects, other classes. If I may, to just go from the micro to the macro for a second, you know, one of the reasons why I think that having a problem-solving approach to mathematics is so valuable and important in today's world is because the pace of change is ever quickening. And if we're going to say that, you know, one of the purposes of education 
is to, you know, in addition to socializing and enculturating um, our children, it's to also prepare them to, you know, confidently take our place in the future, right? And to be well prepared for jobs and to, you know, be uh, competent, you know, uh, people that can, you know, discern information and can be critical thinkers and these kinds of things, right? If that's the case, and we're in an, an ever uncertain kind of future in terms of what jobs are going to be available, what are the skill sets that are going to be valuable, then teaching people how to do one set of tasks and then getting really good at that, let's say memorizing it and then performing it over and over again, doing well on a test, passing that test, moving on to the next thing, those skills have a finite application. In fact, the, the application that they have is very much tied to the very thing that we asked you to do in the first place. However, if you take a problem-solving approach uh, where you're building new connections in your mind, you're confident that you can kind of take the foundational knowledge that you have and apply it in novel contexts that you haven't been shown the path toward a solution, uh, that's really the skill set that's going to come to bear for all of the children now who we don't know what kinds of jobs are going to be available 15 years from now, but I do know that if they're efficient and excellent problem solvers, that they're going to do pretty well in whatever job it is that they find themselves. Yeah. And I've, I've got a quick story, I think, that illustrates that point really, really well. So last year we did Lemonade Stand and my kids were, we were talking about how much to sell the lemonade for. And, you know, they were like throwing out random numbers, had no idea what it would cost or anything like that. We walked through and talked about how, you know, it costs money to, you know, buy the lemonade, the lemons cost money to, to pay for the water, the pitcher, the ice, all that kind of stuff. And then the cups and everything like that. And my kids just totally didn't get it. (laughs) And they were just like, okay, whatever, dad, you're crazy. And so then at the end of my son's school year this year, he had this, he had an opportunity to sell cheese at school and talk about that process in a different way where he was given the problem of how much should we sell the cheese for and how much should we buy before we sell any so that we have stuff to sell to people and what kinds of things should we add? Should we add crackers with it or apples with it or whatever? And so then as we were talking about doing a lemonade stand this year, he said, oh, 25 cents is way too cheap for selling lemonade. We need to sell it for at least a dollar or something like that. I don't remember exactly, but I remember him with confidence saying, this is the way that we need to do it because he had that problem solving practice beforehand where he had to come up with those solutions himself. Whereas last summer with the lemonade stand, I just said, no, you're wrong. And here's what it should be instead of letting them work through that process themselves with this. Uh, teacher that he was working with this year, she made them go through that process and it was significantly better. And he had a much better grasp of how, you know, supply and demand and all that kind of stuff that I know she didn't actually teach him all those things explicitly, but because he was interested in the idea and knew what he wanted to do, he was paying much more attention and really engaged in the process and learned a lot more about it than, you know, he, than he did last year when I was quote unquote, trying to teach them. That's exactly right. That's, that's such a wonderful example. And I think that, you know, it really very nicely illustrates that concept of because your son had to come to that solution and go through that process the first time on his own to problem solve, 
you know, once you go down that path, you're so much more likely to be able to recreate, you know, uh, a workable solution to another problem that you haven't seen uh, next time around. And it's really just about getting comfortable with that process. Uh, You know, this is a cliche phrase, but there's a lot of truth in it, getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, right? And I think that uh, if we're going back to our, you know, what's needed to change in, in schools, you know, it's this idea that I think that we can, we can and should carve out a lot more time and space for students to just be uncomfortable with a problem that's right within their grasp, but they might not have all the answers for immediately, but they have the tools, the foundational tools to be able to get there. And they haven't been shown the path by, you know, the sage on the stage or by their teacher before, but instead to say, hey guys and girls, here's something that you haven't seen before. Now I'm confident that everyone in this classroom can figure out a way or multiple ways to solve this. And we've never seen a problem like this. So we're just going to sit with this problem and we're going to reason our way through it. And we're going to sit with that struggle and we're going to sit with that, dare I say, frustration, right? And, you know, figure out, okay, well, where do I start? What would be a good place to start? And it's really this, this collection of activities that is what's, I think, what's most needed and what is missing the most in the way that we, the way that we teach our kids in schools right now. Yeah. So how does a teacher do that? And the complaint that we're going to hear is we don't have time to slow down and observe a problem and feel the frustration. We have to get through all this curriculum. What's your answer to that, Grayson? That's a thorny one. I'm going to try and approach that from a couple different angles. So, you know, I myself have been a teacher. I've worked with hundreds of teachers. I've been uh, in education at multiple different levels. And, you know, this isn't, and I understand that question coming from teachers that have come from teachers that will come from teachers. And, you know, they're not wrong to ask it and they're not wrong to point out that that's a flaw. And I don't think that it's on them necessarily to do everything. Uh, This in some ways is a bit of a cop-out, but it's really the structure that we've created that doesn't allow us the time. And when I say structure, I I mean that in the largest sense possible. You know, a system that is hyper-focused on the numbers because they, you know, influence uh, funding formulas for schools. And, you know, in some cases, who gets to keep their jobs and things like that, right? So there's just this, this structure that we've created where we're focused on the results and we're focused less on the process. And I can add to this a little bit uh, in terms of you know, how and why I think that this is a, br- a bigger problem than we might even realize is that we're stifling. We're stifling our own creativity. We're stifling the creativity uh, of our students because in a, in a system that encourages and rewards, you know, highest grades possible, these kinds of things, it limits the incentive for students to take intellectual risks and to say, okay, well, I know I've been taught the problem this way, but what if we tried it this way? And uh, because, you know, you might not get it wrong, or you might not answer it in time and things like that. But that's really where you know, in my, for my money, the true, the true kind of learning happens. And so I think that uh, one thing that we can do is 
be in this together. So education doesn't just have to happen uh, with teachers in classrooms. So we know that schools play a very important role in, in everyone's lives, but education doesn't have to stop when those bells ring, right? So I think that as, as parents, we can, you know, let's say, take an interest in let's, some of the things that, you know, our, our kids are learning and then learn to ask some, some good questions to say, okay, well, we're learning this, you know, what if we thought about it differently? Is there another way to, to answer that problem? Or let's, you know, what if we tried this? Or, oh, this is a fun puzzle that we might be able to, to think about for a little while. So you're right that oftentimes the way the structure is set up, there might not be time, you know, being realistic about this in a certain classroom to pause everything that we're doing, not focus on the things that quote unquote need to get done and say, all right, well, we're just going to do a problem solving session for, you know, for every class period this week. And if that's, if there's not space for that, then we can create space for that outside of school. Yeah. I I think that that's, that's great advice and certainly a good place to start. I've noticed when I've had those kinds of conversations with kids, they'll go and think about those things for some time and they'll, they'll like come back to me later and say, Hey, what about this? Do you think that this is, and then we can have a discussion about it. And I, I worked really hard to intentionally do that with kids, especially kids that were having behavioral issues at school this last school year, where I really wanted them to not just like get sent down to the office, come into my office and get a consequence and then, you know, go back out and, and just go on with their life. I wanted them to really think about that process. And so I started doing it differently and asking them those kinds of questions. Like one question I asked a kid was, what do you think would have happened if you would have done this in a different class? And how do you think that teacher would have reacted? How do you think the kids in those, in that class would have reacted? And why would that be different? And what does that mean? And the kid was like, oh, well, this teacher would get mad because she's, she hates me or whatever. And I was like, no, that's a, that's a lame answer. You can't get away with that. So I want you to really think about it though. You don't act this way in this other teacher's class. What if you did though? What would that look like? And, and why do you act differently in that class? And this kid was able to come back and articulate, well, I was thinking about this over the weekend, or I was thinking about this last week. And this is what I think is how I'd respond to that question. And so we were able to have these conversations where kids could like start taking ownership instead of just, I broke the rule, I get a consequence, I go on with my life. And that became a really powerful process. And, and the reason I'm bringing up the behavior part is that we don't have time for dealing with behavior issues either, right? And many times in schools, the kid goes in and they get a consequence and then they're you know, out of school or in detention or whatever the thing is. And that is a valuable, valuable opportunity for learning. And we too often just gloss right over it like it's, you know, oh, I got to fill out this form and take care of this kid because here's what it says in the handbook. And, and that just doesn't help them actually learn. It helps them know that they need to stop, but it doesn't help them change their behavior inside. It only helps them know when they shouldn't get caught, you know? Exactly. Exactly right. Uh, you know, I that really reminds me of kind of the analog for thinking about this in a math classroom, right? So, you know, imagine that you're a student in a classroom and, you know, you find a, a particular problem in a book that you think you can do, but you're not, you're not quite sure. Maybe your, your teacher gives you a problem and, you know, you work on it for a little bit 
and then you work on it for a little bit more and it, and it bugs you because, you know, you want to be able to solve it. You want to be able to, you know, get it right. I'm making scare quotes in the back that you can't see. <laughs> and you want to, you know, come to a solution. And finally, you give up. And you look, you look up the answer in the back of the book because you know that you can and you know that it's there. And the solution, for the most part, makes sense. But there's still this nagging dissatisfaction, right? But then you yes. think about that for a yep. second. Well, why is there a dissatisfaction? Because you've, you've been shown the path. Like you have the answer, right? But there's a dissatisfaction because at the heart of it, there's still a lingering question for that student. How would I have thought of that? Or another way of asking, how would I know where to start next time I find a problem like that? So it really, you know, it gets back to this, you know, this, what you were just talking about, which is, okay, well, well, what can we do behaviorally, uh, academically, or otherwise, that is going to actually push us forward, get us to think about things critically in a, or in a different way, and help us to learn so that we can uh, be that much better the next time? Right. And so just knowing the answer or just, you know, serving your time, as it were, if you're getting in trouble as a student, that doesn't really move us forward. Right. The thing that really moves us forward is this understanding of, you know, getting a good a good answer to the how would I have thought of that uh, question? You know? Yeah. And what I what I like about what you said there, Grayson, is that when you care, you still have that nagging feeling in the back of your mind. When kids know that it's just a hoop to jump through and all the teacher is looking for is the right answer, then that doesn't exist. But when you when you care about what you're learning and what you're doing, then that that nagging feeling is still there. And so I think that that part is I, I don't know if I'm t- articulating this how I really want to, but but when they care, then they care a lot. And when they don't care then they don't care a lot, you know? And, and that's where you mentioned before, like instilling motivation in kids to want to do math. That's so important because if you, if you can get them to believe that they can think mathematically and that they can be successful at it, I mean, nobody likes feeling stupid and many kids hate math because they feel stupid when they go in there. And, and that's just not a good place for them to be. So we need to do something that invites them and encourages them to care enough that they know that it's not just about the right answer, but that it's about the process, that it's about how they approach it, it's about how they think about it, and that that's where the real value is. Does that does that make sense, or am I speaking out of turn? No, absolutely, and I'm I'm really glad that you that you said it because you know the people that I'm I'm very fortunate because the people that I have the privilege of working with they all care immensely. So many of us have been educators of some stripe or fashion uh, prior to coming to Art of Problem Solving. And the thing that really unites us is that we all really care about education. And we want to have that experience that, you know, we want to have that light bulb go off for kids in school or out of school. We want kids to experience the joy and satisfaction of solving a problem that they didn't think that they could, or perhaps, you know, a couple months ago, never thought that they could, but now that they've challenged themselves or they've been challenged by a network of peers or a teacher to reach new levels, 
that they have a new level of confidence and motivation when it comes to how they uh, see themselves and think of themselves as a learner and a thinker. And I think that we, we have a, a tremendous opportunity as a country to really make a difference and start caring about the way uh, that we do math, particularly in elementary school. So I think that there, there's wonderful work being done all over the place. And I think that there's a preponderance of this work being done in middle school and high school. But I think that we often miss the mark in elementary school. And I think that that's really the key because that's, those are the ages where you can lose kids. Those are the ages where you can, like you said, uh, students can have a, uh, develop a negative mindset uh, in terms of their ability to do math, to be good with numbers, or you know, to think of themselves as smart when it comes to talking about or doing math either by themselves or with others or in front of others, which might be scary in school. And so I think that if we can, if we can motivate and challenge students to do rigorous, thought-provoking, interesting math in elementary school, then I think we're, gonna, we're going to retain a lot more of the students that we may have otherwise lost. And part of the way to do this is to encourage them to take some intellectual risks, to try problems that are difficult, uh, to try new problems that they perhaps uh, you know, don't have the easy path toward. And when you do this, you're going to build thinkers and learners that are uh, resilient, that have perseverance, and that when they get to you know, some more difficult advanced mathematics later on in middle school and high school, and they come across a situation or a challenge that they don't know the answer to, they're gonna be that much more likely to say, hey, no big deal. I've gotten tons of problems wrong before, and I know that that's fine. In fact, I know that if I'm struggling with a problem and it's right there, it's like right there for me to solve, I know that I'm on the right track and I'm solving a problem worth solving. Because anything that is you get right on the first time and is extremely easy for you, okay, great, you're doing well, right? But you're not challenged enough. And if I could kind of add one more layer to this, I think that there's another imperative for us to for us to care about this. And we see this a lot with, with uh, students that are, let's, that, let's say, uh, have the gifted and talented label, that have the highly capable label, what, whatever label it is uh, in, the, you know, in the area of the country that you live in. So a lot of these students, they may outstrip the math that their school or district can teach. And for a lot of reasons, they're touted as a great success by uh, by their teachers and by, you know, maybe their peers and this kind of thing, because they don't get problems wrong. They ace everything. They're the fastest to finish all of these things. Right. But, you know, these kids are at a disadvantage, actually, because they've never had to learn that, hey, hard problems are ahead and the things that are worth doing are going to be tough. And so far too often, in fact, you know, I remember my freshman year, uh, you know, being in intro bio and, and chemistry you know, seminars, students that were straight A students, you know, valedictorian, this kind of thing in high school, they hit a wall and they get a 70 for the first time in their life. And they internalize that as a failure. They internalize that as I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not as smart as these other kids, or I'm not as smart as I thought I was. When in fact, that is not the message that they should be thinking about. The message that they should have uh, flash across their mind when they get a 70 is, 
no big deal. You know, I've gotten problems wrong before and I'm not scared of hard problems. In fact, I want the hard problems, bring them on, you know? And so I think that the earlier that we can instill that, and again, I would argue that needs to happen as early as elementary school. The earlier that we can instill that in our students, the better off they will be, not only for the remainder of their educational tenure, but past that into their careers and throughout the rest of their lives. Absolutely. Amen. Preach. Exactly. That's that's exactly what I think too. And it's about more than just math, obviously, but that's what we're mainly talking about. But this is something that I learned in my school this last year. We did this thing. I'll give real short explanation of it and I'll send you a link. And if you're listening, it's in the show notes at transformativeprinciple.org. And it was it's called Synergy. And we had kids do a project that would make the world a better place. And we left it totally open. And kids did all kinds of crazy, amazing things. And I got to tell you, man, the things they learned from doing that, we could have never taught them because they were learning exactly what you were just talking about, that it's okay to fail, that they can make their own decisions, that when they make a decision, they have to own it. And if they make a bad decision, that's their problem and they need to find a solution to it. And just the things that these kids learn, I gave a uh, a keynote speech about it at our technology conference here in Alaska a few months ago, and it was it was just so amazing to see what these kids could do to share what they've learned and to identify within themselves the things that they personally learned that nobody else could have like set out a curriculum and said, "I want you to learn these things by the end of the year." Nobody could have done it as well as those kids did just doing their own thing. And it's, it's truly amazing. So that applies to math and everything else that we're trying to teach kids. So Grayson, this has been an awesome conversation. I appreciate it. The last question that I ask everybody is what is one thing a principal can do this week to be a transformative leader like you? Absolutely. And I should say, thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's been a real pleasure and I would love to have follow-up conversations with you if you'll have me back, but that's maybe for another time. You know, I would say that the number the number one thing that principals could do to really kind of, you know, push things forward is to really carve out time and space, uh, whether it's for students in the classrooms, whether it's for, you know, conversations with your teacher to say, you know, hey, let's carve out a little bit of time just to do some things thinking. Let's, let's explore. Let's, let's work on some hard problems together. Let's talk about these problems and do it without a goal in mind. Let's do it for the sake of doing it, right? Let's do it for the sake of the process of knowledge and problem solving. Uh, so not caring about the score, not caring about the numbers, not caring about anything that comes out as a product or result at the very tail end of it, but to just carve out a little bit of space, even if it's just five or 10 minutes, just to say, hey, this is going to be really fun and rewarding. There's no stakes, no pressure. Let's just think about an interesting, fun, challenging problem that we've never seen before. And let's talk about it. Well, I think that's fantastic. That's great advice. Grayson, if people want to learn more from you and connect with you, how do they do that? Absolutely. So I would encourage people to check out the Art of Problem website, first of all, to get a lot more resources. We've got tons of free stuff on there, tons of articles and literature. So just go to aops.com. If you want to contact me specifically, I always encourage actually 
you know, direct communication. So you can feel free to send me an email at gmos at aops.com. And yeah, we look forward to uh, continuing more of these great conversations. Excellent. Well, thank you again so much for being part of Transformative Principle. And that is gmos, M-A-S-S at A-O-A-A-S. So yeah, it's two A's and one S. Two A's and one S. Well, no wonder I was getting it wrong. There you go. (laughs) No sweat. (laughs) Grayson Moss. All right. Sorry about that. No problem. Thank you so much again for being on Transformer Principle. This was really fantastic. Thank you. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.